Today's Data Knots episode is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning of the most in-demand IT certs. Visit itpro.tv slash data and use code DATANOTS to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Like you, my lovely listeners, we here at the Data Nuts are often frustrated by those learn to draw a horse presentations. You know, they give you a few breadcrumbs to get you started on an idea, perhaps using a circle and an oval to draw the horse's shoulders. And then, hey, they immediately skip to the end. They show you this beautifully drawn horse and you're like, hey, you skipped a step presenter. How do I do that? Today, we're expanding on the virtual desktop infrastructure or VDI with an expert and newly minted author on the subject. Be sure to grab your secret decoder ring, but don't worry, we won't ask you to drink your Ovaltine. Howdy, I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who carries a fried Spam sandwich in his backpack, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Knots Podcast. You can find this on all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net. Actually, Ethan, aren't we on like Spotify and stuff now too? Don't we have new places where you can download Data Knots? We have got one of our feeds loaded into Spotify. That is correct. So Spotify yes. isn't as easy as uh, a lot of the others, but yes, we're getting there on Spotify as we work with their arcane system to get loaded in. We are all over the place. So let's dive right in and talk about VDI, Virtual Desktop Infrastructure. Let's introduce today's guest. He is Johan von Amersfoort. I know I screwed that up, Johan. I apologize. But you're well-known in the VDI and EUC space. Please tell us who you are and what do you do. Yeah, hi guys. Great to be here and thanks for having me. My name is Johan van Amersfoort. I am a technical marketing architect working for ITQ Consultancy in the Netherlands. I'm an EUC specialist and have been working in the EUC space for nearly 20 years. Got it. What's up with the orange glasses that I see everywhere for the ITQ folks? Yeah, that's, the, the orange glasses um, uh, it kind of reminds you of, of the nerd, something we are proud of being. It's kind of our, uh, our, our, our brand, our trademark. And the Dutch orange, I'm assuming, there as well. Absolutely, which is t- nowadays is kind of wrong because we started out in Belgium earlier this year. Okay. So, yeah, we need to find out how this, th- that's going to work. Well, first off, congrats on the book. I just saw that the VDI design guide, uh, you know, a comprehensive guide to help you design VMware Horizon based on 2018 standards. It's a long title on Amazon, but a good book. I've pieced through it. You sent me an early access copy digitally and I uh, kind of devoured through it. I must say, I enjoyed the semi-conversational tone that you have throughout the book. It feels like you're just talking to me like from one friend to the next. So kudos to that, and we will contain a link in the show notes. The first question I had for you, though, was, well, asking why seems to be a central theme to your book. I noticed that quite a bit. You're not just looking at, here's the nerd knobs and here's the things, but asking why. And that especially is underlined for finding reasons to build a virtual desktop infrastructure project or EUC project. So in your opinion, Johan, what are the requirements that often help support the decision to build a VDI project or engage on a VDI project? Well, the obvious answer, obviously, is it depends. But what what we see nowadays is that a lot of companies, um, especially the customers I work with in the Netherlands, are hospitals, so mainly healthcare, who have a demand for a higher availability than a physical desktop currently has. So when we migrate their physical workloads towards a virtual desktop infrastructure, 
they are able to achieve a higher uptime and a better availability than they had working on the physical ones. From a other perspective, uh, look at security, for instance, we see that there, um, the, the security risks that are involved with, for instance, bring your own device are massive. So if the Generation Z people that leave universities right now are going to work at a company and are expecting for their own device to, to being used in, in, in the new working environment, uh, it, it creates all kinds of risks. You know, look at file sharing or taking the IP of your employer with you on your notebook. That's definitely something you want to avoid. At the same time, they're expecting those sorts of things. So you have to design. In that case, the use cases, it's an expectation. You have to lure the talent over. Therefore, you must solve bring your own device. Yeah, absolutely. Hire now. Yeah, the, the number one requirement that uh, we see that drives companies into deploying a VDI is the application, obviously. You know, if an organization only has uh, cloud-based, SaaS-based applications that are already mobile, already modern, uh, you won't need a VDI. You could easily work with like a, a digital workspace, like a portal and include all those applications there. But yeah, because of the traditional and legacy applications, you are almost mandatory to use a VDI to, uh, to deploy those applications to any endpoint. Almost required. Boy, that sounds uh, it's like maybe this really will be the year of VDI when you get into situations where you actually have to do a virtual desktop. So for those folks that are considering this, could you, could you summarize your design approach? Is this something that, that an architect would, would understand in a summary format? Yeah, sure. So the approach that I used is the VCDX approach. So the VMware Certified Design Expert approach. I became a, v- a VCDX two years ago. And the whole process of, of creating a design by listening to the customer, creating goals, doing workshops and create requirements and, and ask the customer for requirements, convert those requirements into possible design decisions, mitigate or, or inventorize risks and mitigate them uh, wherever possible, find out constraints that you might have at the customer. And firstly, with all that information create a conceptual design. And that conceptual design will eventually lead you into a logical design and a physical design. So that's, that's in short, that's the approach. In other words, it's the design approach of there isn't a one right answer is going to work for you for VDI. If you're this side, go here. If you're this size, go this other direction. It's like any well-designed project, you have to find your requirements, and then dig through the scenario deeply to know, finally, this is what I think the design is that's going to work for this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, every customer is different. So the one thing that makes such customers different is obviously a requirement and and the different sets of requirements that you might have or the different goals that the customer might have. But users and applications are, I would say, the, the number one and two a thing that makes a customer different. So in order to have a full image of how a customer looks like or what a customer looks like, you need to do an assessment. And an assessment could be done by, for instance, using a tool to create a full image of their entire environment. But an assessment is more than just creating an overview of endpoints and applications and user profiles and stuff like that. 
it's also really important to talk to the customer. And I think that that's something that is quite often forgotten. And, and the customer in that case isn't just like the people making decisions or the IT teams. It's more from a end user perspective that you need to know what the customer is expecting. And talking to your personas, to your uh, use cases and knowing what they are going to expect in terms of user experience, in my opinion, that's that's the maybe even the number one thing to assess prior to designing your infrastructure. Because a funny thing, I did a, um, a design and deploy of Horizon a couple of years ago in Abu Dhabi. And at that customer, we had problems in terms of login times. They were far too long. And far too long was seven minutes. So people entering the customer in the morning, the first thing they did was turn on their zero client, go to the coffee machine, have a chat with their colleagues. And after seven minutes, when they got back, they were presented with the desktop. So after designing their new infrastructure, looking at where the, the, the issues were, we designed a new infrastructure in which the login times were shortened to one and a half minutes. For the customer at that moment, was it was awesome because they they uh, were yeah kind of able to work directly. If I propose those one and a half minutes to a completely different customer, such as a hospital, they won't be happy at all. You know, at a hospital, someone um, that's at a desk and uh, talking to patients needs to be able to log in within a couple of seconds and uh, need to work with their main main applications, and that's. You know, that's that's the one thing that makes every customer different, use cases and users. I don't know. I figure seven minutes is a nice little break. Go get your coffee, go get a snack, socialize. I don't know. I guess it's eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> the bosses want it shorter, but maybe the employees are like, whatever. But that leads me, it sounds like the gotcha in that case is not wanting to talk to people and perhaps fleshing out what the environment looks like, what their needs are. What other things within the design phase or obstacles can crop up during the design phase, especially the things that might crop up and and perhaps trip up a lesser experienced architect? Because I know in your book, you really seem to hate printers. So that seems like one thing, but maybe there's others. (laughs) Yeah, well, printers and roaming profiles, those are are probably my uh, nemesis, both of them. So Printers is a challenge because everyone, every customer has, um, well, every enterprise customer nowadays has like a, a really big enterprise sized printer solution, like with follow me printing and stuff like that. And in an ideal situation, just have a solution like that. So every office of the customer has a printer like that. The issue isn't that big, but as soon as people are wanting to work from home and want to print stuff over there. They're going to use different types of printers. Those printers need to be installed uh, within your session. So printer drivers are automatically loaded. And with all printed drivers nowadays, but also like back in the day with just NT Terminal Server Edition or with uh, WinFrame even earlier, mixed and matching printer drivers is, is one big challenge, I would say. And, you know, quite often you turn out with uh, different printer settings that don't work with one printer, do work with the other. So a lot of end users are going to complain if you tolerate uh, different types of printers and if you tolerate users to, to use their own printers. That's always a challenge. 
What about coordinating the project across IT silos? The one thing that always kind of had me interested slash mystified about BDI is it touches everything from desktop support through applications, backend, front-end, infrastructure, you name it. Do you find that when folks are starting off as a new architect, that's a challenge? Because what I'm thinking is just knowing who to incorporate in a project like this seems a little daunting. That's a great question. Uh, one of the challenges, not even from a design perspective, but from maybe a whole project perspective, is indeed touching out different silos of, of teams. What we do see is that um, in business cases, quite often, customers forget to take into account that the uh, the load of work that an EOC team will receive is drastically going to change. So take, for instance, your applications. If a customer currently has a couple of hundred applications and those applications are managed through a traditional software deployment solution like uh, SCCM, what you'll see is that in case an up application gets updated, it's just a single update that needs to create it, like a new MSI or an updated MSI. And if you want to deploy that, it's it's fairly simple. You know, you deploy it to all your endpoints, and uh, after a couple of weeks, probably every endpoint has that update. If you look at the VDI, your applications quite often will be deployed through layering or through application virtualization. And maintaining, first of all, maintaining a great number of virtual applications or application layers is, is a challenge. With the number of updates that every application nowadays receives, take your Office Suite, for instance. Uh, I would say that every month the Office Suite will get updated. If you need to incorporate that number of updates into your layering solution, the operational expenses will only increase. And that's that's something that a lot of companies forget to make sure that all of their silos, their management silos uh, within the organization are able to handle that load. From another perspective, you know, if you look at just-in-time management platform, so that's one of the last releases that VMware did in 7.4, a solution was released to eventually click and like on a menu, you could click and select your different options for a new pool of desktops and they're automatically linked to each other and a new pool is created. And the, the wizard itself and the creation of the pools is fairly simple, but getting your applications to be in a layer and creating user profiles that, um, so UEM user profiles, application profiles that are linked to those applications takes a lot of time and a lot of maintenance. And again, that's something that a lot of customers do forget. You know, it does sound like a great tool to lower your operational expenses, but due to a lot of changes, a lot of IT teams don't oversee those changes. And they, I'm not saying they're not capable of, of, of handling those change types of, uh, of workloads, but it does require a different skill set and also a different way of managing your IT designs like this, when you get into something complex like this, it's always a compromise. So one of the challenges here, you've got availability and performance. You want things to go quickly, but you also need them to be available. And yet both of those things cost money. So is there a, I mean, how do you choose there? Is one more important than the other? Or can you have both and still stay uh, within a good, uh, you know, a good reasonable budget? 
Yeah, that's a great question. What we see is that on average, customers don't really understand what it what it takes if they suggest an availability percentage of, for instance, four nines or ninety nine point ninety five percent. And if they what they don't see is that almost every customer has a budget constraint. You know, the budget budget could be like insanely amount of money, but still, if you want to have an availability of, of four nines, that is something that is really hard to do and requires a lot of redundant components, such as a secondary data center, uh, maybe even metro clusters. And uh, on average, when we talk about those things during a design phase, uh, during requirements workshops, eventually, or, or at first, the responsible persons for IT will say, yes, please go with that availability. That's definitely something we want, and we want it for all users. But as soon as, for instance, the uh, CFO or another financial responsible person in, uh, at the customer is aware of the impact of such a percentage, quite often that requirement is changed. And that's not something that we see occasionally or, or, or uh, incidentally, sorry, it's something that we see on a regular basis. And performance obviously has an impact to that as well. You know, we could easily design and deploy a big VDI with a lot of GPUs, with the fastest CPUs available, with a lot of cores, high clock speeds. But at the end, the VDI shouldn't be much more expensive than the current EUC or or workplace delivery methodology and or or IT in general. That's hard. It's it's hard to uh, convince a customer that they are doing the right thing because they you know they heard of a VDI, they want to do VDI, and they don't oversee what the impact is if they want to achieve the best performance possible and availability uh, for a higher availability for all their users in multiple data centers and stuff like that. I love design discussions where we get together and chat about architecture because inevitably the term it depends comes up because uh, sometimes you talk to a designer, you go, hey, I'm, I'm trying to do this. What would you do? And the first thing out of their mouth is, it depends, which is not a cop-out. That is actually the right initial answer when considering a design issue. So if you're in that position of being a designer or an architect, don't expect to just demonstrate how amazingly smart you are by rattling off exactly what this architecture could be or should be because you don't know, right? You got to dig deep and find out all those business requirements and what the constraints are and what the budget is and then come up with an answer it depends not a cop-out what were your thoughts chris oh it feels like we've it feels like we've hit a sensitive tooth there buddy i love it so i was thinking that it's actually good to relate the design to the customer's specific requirements and goals kind of a similar vein as you ethan it's just because some people charge in and they just want to solve it with their particular toolkit but in this case johan was talking about a seven minute logon versus a 1.5 minute logon and that particular improvement was great for the customer in question but it may be entirely unacceptable for another. So there's no single solution that you can just apply globally until you find out the requirements.
Before we go back to the show, you should know about IT Pro TV. This is online on-demand training that helps you certify in a variety of programs, including Certified Ethical Hacker Version 9, AWS Certified Solutions Architect Associate, AWS Certified SysOps Administrator, and then Cisco certs like CCNA and CCNP, Microsoft certs like MCSA and MCSE, and VMware, VCP6 Data Center Virtualization, and many more. The course library has something for you, whether you're brand new to the industry and you're just trying to skill up fast, or maybe you've been around for a while and you want to stay sharp. IT Pro TV keeps the course library current, recording new content live every day, and they are hoping you will find it binge-worthy learning. You can consume the courses pretty much any way you want. You can stream either the live courses or the on-demand courses from your desktop, mobile device, Apple TV, Roku, and Fire TV. And now the big question, what about pricing? Well, premium subscriptions, which include unlimited Kaplan practice exams and virtual labs, are normally $857 per year. But when you use code DataNots, you'll only pay $600 per year. Standard subscriptions and corporate memberships are also available, so choose a plan, create an account, and learn. Visit itpro.tv slash data and use code DATANOTS to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. One more time, itpro.tv slash data and use code DATANOTS. And now back to the show. So, Johan, we started out with the the architect's perspective, kind of getting that high-level overview of how we should be thinking about VDI and the infrastructure. Now let's get down and deep some of the nerdy details of VDI and VDI deployment. So, first up, what types of desktops do you generally build, and then how do they work under the hood? So, we're talking about, like, non-persistent versus persistent, uh, full clones versus link clones, and anything else you want to talk about in this arena? Yeah, so, great question. Um, What I... Uh, most customers build is a solution that contains every desktop and clone that you just mentioned. So full clones, instant clones, persistent and non-persistent ones. And what we see is that the operational expenses of a customer could be brought down if they are using as many non-persistent clones as possible. So a pers- non-persistent clone basically is a clone that as soon as you sign out, gets decommissioned and everything that was running on it is gone. And the the big advantage of a non-persistent clone is that in case, for instance, your clones or, or uh, there's a, a site failure or there's a, there's a different failure, we could easily recreate a lot of those clones in a short amount of time. So if you run non-persistent instant clones, we could easily create like um, 500 clones in in maybe half an hour, easily. Um, In terms of disaster recovery, that's that's, um, a big, big plus. Unfortunately, not every application and not every use case is able to run on an instant clone or is, isn't able to run on a non-persistent clone. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds perfect. Everyone gets a non-persistent clone, done. Yeah, yeah well, awesome. you know, take, um, uh, take our developers, for instance. You know, a developer wants to do a lot of stuff by themselves, need elevated permissions, need to install their, maybe uh, their databases or, or do something on their desktop that isn't really suitable for a non-persistent clone. And 
I would say that at every almost almost every customer we we see challenges like that, and those challenges could be avoided. So what we are aiming for in almost every uh, customer is to take their current monolithic desktop and change or, or no and migrate that desktop in a desktop that contains layers. So a layer of operating system, a layer of applications, a layer of their profile in, in different kind of containers and make the user experience for the end user persistent. So the user needs to have the idea that every time the user signs into a new desktop, it's his old desktop. And what we do to do that is incorporate different uh, technologies. So I already mentioned the jump platform in the first section and the jump platform contains or, or consists out of instant clones, app volumes, and user environment manager. These three technologies are able to create a non-persistent desktop that is interchangeable and non-persistent applications that are interchangeable with each other. So for instance, if I have a Windows 10 desktop with version 1703, so that's, that's a not new kind of version, and I have app stacks and UEM profiles running on top of that, as soon as I want to replace the 1703 version of Windows 10 by 1709, I could easily do that by just creating another base image and assigning that to the applications and the, and the user profiles. And as soon as a user signs in again in their, in their desktop pool, they'll receive the new desktop with their old applications and their old, old profiles. Well, Johan, I want to I want to dig deeper into that because I don't think everyone really knows what the image is that you're talking about uh, first and foremost, and then the differences and kind of the the architecture behind an instant clone, a full clone. I remember there used to be link clone. Yeah, and you kind of go through what are you building and how are these things being cloned and used? Right. So there are mainly three types of clones, uh, like you mentioned. So there's the full clone, which basically is the same like a full clone you could create in vCenter. You basically select a VM, you clone it, you let vCenter uh, customize it, and at the end, you have a full new machine, which is just a machine with their own VMDKs, with their own VMX file, so the configuration file of the uh, of the VM. And it, it's completely... It doesn't have any link with the base image. Got it. So the second one is the link clone. You just mentioned it. The link clone basically is... It's kind of a snapshot. So if you take a base image, you take a snapshot out of that, Horizon is able to create clones by leveraging the power of another component called a view composer. That view composer will take the snapshot that is configured in Horizon and create tiny VMDKs, uh, thin VMDKs, and customize those VMDKs into link clone virtual machines. Use link clones, for instance, in in the um, uh, in other solutions as well. So I, I think even VRA and um, things like uh, VMware Fusion or Workstation are able to create link clones as well. But Horizon leverages the power of View Composer to customize those clones, and those clones could be created in a couple of minutes. Let's say two to three minutes, they could be customized and running as a new fresh desktop. Is that because wow. all the changes are just held in that little 
within the MDK. Yeah, and because the size of that link clone isn't that big, it's it's nearly uh, at average it's nearly ten percent of the size of the base image. It doesn't take a lot of time for your storage, for instance, to create those link clones. While a full clone could easily, if, if your base image is eighty gigs, the other clone could be eighty gigs as well. And uh, well, cloning of a, a, um, a new VMDK uh, that is 80 gigs that that could take some time, depending on on the storage obviously you have running underneath it. Since a couple of years, I think since vSphere six, VMware introduced a new technology ca- called VM uh, VM Fork. So VM Fork is an API in vCenter in vSphere that is able to create uh, a fork. Of or or a running copy of an existing virtual machine, and nowadays in, in Horizon we call that an instant clone. Or or I think even since uh, Horizon uh, six two we or Horizon seven we call that an instant clone. The instant clone technology basically is it's it's quite similar to a link clone. So you'll take a base image, you'll create a snapshot out of it. And in case you're, you'll create an instant clone with the Horizon Wizard, a running machine that, that runs in, 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 uh, in memory will be taken and a copy, a clone of that running machine will be created. But it totally runs in memory. The creation of that clone could take... Well, the, the creation of the VM is, is just a couple of seconds, like one or two seconds. The customization of that clone takes like an additional five to six seconds. So within, let's say, 10 seconds, you could have a completely forked running clone that is available for users to sign into. And that makes it highly suitable for the just-in-time management platform because you don't have to pre-provision a lot of clones. So if you have, for instance, a company with 2,000 concurrent users and they sign in in the morning with link clones, you need to have, let's say, 1,500 desktops already provisioned to make sure that there aren't a lot of bootstorms and users don't have to wait for a new desktop to be uh, provisioned. With instant clones, that's that's a lot faster and uh, could even be done in a lot of cases on demand. So it saves you in management. Johan, let's talk about accelerated graphics environments and GPUs. So it used to be back in the day, this was a little bit mysterious. And if you had really graphics intensive things to serve up in that uh, desktop, it was uh, really hard to do. W- what's it like today? You've got, is it a shared GPU for many users? Do you dedicate a graphics card per user? What sort of applications can leverage that hardware on the back end? How's it all work? Yeah, great that, great question, Ethan. So nowadays we see a couple of different use cases. So you just mentioned the uh, the shared use of, of a GPU or the, uh, the direct connect of, of a GPU. So it totally depends on the use case. In my opinion, there are currently three types of use cases that would even or either leverage the power of a GPU or not. So the first would be the users that you would give a GPU in their own system, in their physical system right now as well. So those are your typical designers or your developers that create um, highly intense applications or maybe stockbrokers that, that need like four 4K screens to, to run their applications. Those are the typical ones that would be really, really angry if they don't run uh, with the GPU. Okay, so the, the second use case is, for instance, your kiosk PCs or your uh, receptionists. 
people with applications that definitely don't require graphical acceleration that could leverage the power of the CPU and your VRAM to accelerate their graphics. And and th- those are like the graphical designers. They're fairly simple because you know you know you don't have to uh, use GPUs to let them work with, with a great user experience. So there's a third use case, and that's the difficult one. Uh, when Windows 10 came out, things changed comparing to Windows 7. You know, Windows 7 didn't require a GPU to run properly, but with Windows 10, Windows 10 is expecting a GPU. And if a GPU isn't included in the, that desktop uh, or in that system, your CPU and your uh, VRAM will emulate the use of a GPU and, and its memory. And that's where the challenge is, because uh, what we quite often hear is that people are unable to work in a, fa- in, in, in a normal way with, for instance, 4K screens or um, 60 frames per second video or when they um, want to run WebGL applications even on a full HD screen. And that's because everything that happens inside the desktop could be simply run, if it runs on a single desktop on a single host, it could work. But as soon as you uh, scale up and and create a higher density, you will see that challenges in in terms of failing user experience will will, uh, occur. Then your your latency will, will probably drop uh, you'll see that your CPU begin to spike. And that's where I think the biggest power of GPUs is. A GPU could easily encode and or have the encode, uh, encoding of, of your, uh, your connection protocol as well as the rendering could be offloaded to that device because it's purpose, purposely built for that. I, I think the only way to find out if a customer or your specific situation would leverage could leverage from the power of a GPUs to do a pilot. You know, it's, um, it, I, I think customers are unable to size or predict sizing for a VDI based on what they currently know. So if we have all physical Windows 10 desktops and we're going to migrate towards a VDI, can I predict for 100% that they are going to require GPUs? No, I'm not. And I think that's why every customer should do a proper proof of concept or a pilot prior to their production situation and test it on on, uh, on density as well. So, Johan, this leads into a kind of a, a bigger sizing question. I'm curious, how many desktops do you actually have sit on a single hypervisor host? Is there like a, a best practices where... You don't want to put more than uh, 10 or 50 or, you know, some number of people or individual desktops that you're serving off of a host in case that hypervisor host falls over and uh, all those people would be interrupted. It totally depends on the requirement of the customer, obviously. If the customer has a requirement to use an aggressive sizing, you would obviously create a higher density on a single host than if a customer requires a conservative sizing. In my opinion reducing the fault domain and will make it dramatically smaller is part of basically every design i would would uh, like to make and uh, like to create so in my opinion smaller hosts that contain like uh, maybe 50 to, to 80 or let's say 90 desktops on a single host would be the max 
but we do see that that maximum density is impacted by the resources that a desktop would currently need. So, well, take a host, for instance. You could add a lot of cores, physical cores, to a single host. You could um, add a lot of uh, RAM to a single host. You could even use, for instance, vSAN or another type of HCI or, or shared storage uh, and have a lot of disk space. So those three are the traditional resources that would tolerate a high density. But now GPU comes into play. And what we do see is that GPUs with the requirement of a user to have a bigger video RAM nowadays is having an impact on that density. So we see a density drop down dramatically. Well, not anything mind-numbing here, but just hearing Johan talk about going through EUC design, I was just thinking there's a lot of tools available for the architect in this kind of work. It's a little bit staggering. There's so many different ways to solve similar but not entirely identical problems. And it definitely speaks to the chops necessary to absorb all of that and become a you know trusted advisor slash architect around EUC. What were you thinking about, Ethan? What do I always think about? Latency. I mean, how often I think about latency in a networking perspective because that's my background. But man, it just shows up everywhere when you're doing designs like this. And, and in a VDI design, you've got all sorts of different things that could impact your latency. The load on the hypervisor host, the storage backend, uh, networking becomes less of an issue in this case, actually, but just all these other processes, like like the accelerated uh, GPU. Who needs one? What kind of work are they doing? What's the response time look like on their screen? Do they have a real-time enough interaction with their application that it's working for them or, or not? It's all about that latency, and so designing for that is a really big deal. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the users and their identity and how they log in and all that kind of jazz. And the first thing that comes to mind for me, I suppose, is, uh, hey, these folks are remote, most typically, and they have to deal with latency and bandwidth and connecting over you know, cable modems and dial-up, I suppose, in some regions. Uh, so how do you tackle that with a VDI design? Because I remember everything back in my, back in my days was all PCOIP, it's going to save the world. Is that still true? Are there other alternatives? Uh, give me the, the landscape there, Johan. Yeah, yeah. Well, PCOIP is still a great protocol, but the uh, negative thing about PCOIP is that it could take out easily take out all bandwidth that you have. So a couple of years ago, VMware uh, created the Blast Extreme protocol, which is much more bandwidth friendly. I would say, and it's also latency tolerant. So even up to um, latency, round rate latencies of 200 milliseconds, you are you could relatively have a a, a normal user experience. With don't don't expect 60 frame video, but you are able to work with your office applications or your your browser, for instance, without any worries. So you're not same playing with, like yeah, HD video games remotely or anything, but it at least looks good. It's all dithered. Yeah, definitely. I'm uh, I'm actually in in a couple of weeks at VMworld. I'm gonna present about a thing we did here. Uh, by we have a F1 simulator running on Horizon, and we had a lot of challenges with uh, latencies up to 10 to 50 milliseconds when driving on the track, and uh, you you could easily already feel on the force feedback of the steering wheel that you hit a wall and the the actual displaying of the wall uh, came like a half a second later uh, so you can easily see that higher latencies are 
uh, could become a challenge for, for such applications. But for a normal user, quote unquote, Blast Extreme with, with a technology because, uh, called adaptive transport is really suitable to have higher latencies and kind of lower uh, bandwidth. And uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's really awesome comparing to PC over IP. Elon, how do we handle desktop antivirus and anti-malware? Is there specific instances that are running on each of those virtual desktops, or is there some central way that that's handled, or or is it not handled? If someone gets infected, just fine, nuke it from orbit and start them over with a complete fresh clone that we know is a known good one. Yeah, so that's a great question. A couple a couple of years ago, we had you know the traditional antivirus solutions, and we scanned uh, physical uh, virtual desktops and with new emerging technologies like NSX and hypervisor uh, scanners, we see that there's a shift of the type of solution that is used in the virtual desktop. So one challenge we faced with the traditional antivirus solutions is that in case you have a non-persistent desktop and you want to de- decommission the desktop as soon as the user signs out, the AV engine is uh, constantly back to it, to a, like an early stage. And if you want to update those engines, like, like let's say every day or every week, that could become a challenge in terms of management of your AV solution. So with the hypervisor AV solutions coming into place, we kind of solved that, that challenge. With the integration with NSX, we kind of are avoiding users to infect other desktops in case something happens. But what I do believe is that the biggest advantage of uh, like an, an emerging technology is levering, well, we leverage the power of user environment management. So UEM, VMware's UEM, isn't purposely built to be a security-related feature. You know, it's more of a solution that could uh, create a, a great user experience. There is a feature in UEM called uh, application whitelisting that we leverage at customers to avoid them to open things that could cause uh, malware infections. And I, I do believe that avoiding uh, a risk like that, the security risk like that is more important than solving uh, the risk or, or putting a bandage on it if it happened. So um, yeah. that, that's why I do think that implementing a solution like UEM with application whitelisting, running an AV solution integrated with NSX is great. If that solution detects that something is, is wrong, you could easily put a tag on the on the VM and let NSX block all traffic incoming or outgoing from that virtual machine. Yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit because I saw that you mentioned NSX in the book and, and you just talked about it now. And I know when I was kind of working with this stuff, it was it was all kind of in its infancy. So does identity start to play into network access by way of the security tags that you're talking about and even you know, micro-segmentation? The word gets thrown out everywhere. But is that reality? Are people using that stuff? And is it effective? Well, we do see that customers are, are willing to use it. But there's one challenge in, in terms of the identity part of, of firewalling. And it's, it, it, it could create like um, a, a lag in, in, in the user experience because signing in and loading those uh, firewall rules could take some time you know the identity part especially if you have big ad's a lot of uh, ou's a lot of nested groups for instance 
it creates some some lags, some latency between your firewall and the uh, and the rules that it needs to load basically from your from your AD. So we don't actually see that being used a lot. It's uh, more that micro segmentation itself is one of the biggest benefits uh, in terms of security risks because if something happens on a single desktop, it just stays in the single desktop and it doesn't spread across across your whole um, whole network. And then, as Ethan says, you nuke it from orbit and move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, back in the day, when when an end user had a security risk or or saw like a, a virus popping up or something else, the first day the thing they did was pull the plug of their desktop, right? Yeah. Well, nowadays, if they do that and you use in some clones, the clone is decommissioned. So the risk itself is is really really small, and having an instant clone that is decommissioned as soon as the user disconnects even reduces the harm it could create basically on your whole infrastructure. All right. I feel like everyone listening, including Ethan and I, are very much armed to do a proper VDI design. And you know, for folks that are looking to go deeper, uh, Johan's book, The VDI Design Guide, I have crushed it recently, a slightly early access version of it, but I'm sure it's just like the published version. And we have a link to the VDI design guide in the show notes. Johan, if people want to engage with you further, what's your Twitter, blog, that kind of jazz? Yeah, so I, I can be found on uh, vhoyan.nl, uh, Twitter at vhoyan, vdidesign.com, and at VDI design guide on Twitter. Right on. And thanks for joining us today to talk about VDI. And that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my good friend, Ethan, he's at EC Banks on Twitter. And he's blogging over at packupushers.net. For more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packupushers.net. You're going to find the Data Knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, VDI, PowerShell. It's all there, handcrafted lovingly for you. Until then, may your server lights blink, your profile roam free, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank mm-hmm. you.